Okay, welcome everyone to another episode of One of 200, the New Zealand and International Politics Podcast. Uh, this is Branko Marcetic, your uh, co-host. Uh, it's just me today, but we have a fantastic guest here, uh, Vladimir Ishenko, who is the uh, a, a sociologist from Ukraine and also a, a research associate at the Institute of East European Studies. Uh, Vladimir, how are you going? I'm good, thanks. That is good to hear. That is good to hear. Well, you're in a very, uh, right now, potentially dangerous part of the world as, as tensions rise over Ukraine, which is exactly why we have you on. Uh, obviously, this is a matter that, that matters a lot to the world, but also to New Zealand, with New Zealand being one of the United States uh, security allies in the Five Eyes Alliance. Um, so uh, before we get into some of the history that led us here, I want to ask you about some of the events that we've been seeing. There's seems to be confusion about the U.S. is saying there's an imminent invasion coming from Russia. Uh, the U.K. is backing them up. Meanwhile, Ukraine itself says, no, that's not happening. Same with France, Germany. What exactly is going on here? What is your read of the situation? Uh, and why is the Ukrainian government seemingly taking such a, a different line to this uh, from the United States? I think that's uh, at least two uh, partially autonomous processes which are going on. One is uh, the Russian coercive diplomacy and the military buildups are just one part of this uh, because there are also parallel diplomatic actions, parallel covert actions perhaps. And uh, the other process is actually this uh, media campaign about the imminent invasion, uh, which is uh, which has it's not autonomous logic, uh, probably it's driven by different uh, interests. It should not be taken as kind of like just uh, an objective reflection of the Russian actions. And it also has this reinforcing escalating character. And even more so, the target of this campaign is probably the primary target, at least it's probably not even Russia or Ukraine, but uh, Germany. Uh, which uh, is supposed to keep kind of like closer to its NATO ally, uh, allies and uh, maybe it's even the Nord Stream is maybe may, may one of the most important parts of, of what's, what's going on. But nevertheless, it's, it's, I think it just we need to be clear. There are two kind of like somewhat different things what Russia is doing and what the US and UK media are doing. And uh, at this moment, they are kind of like reinforcing this uh, escalation. And from the Ukrainian side, it's, uh, yeah, they indeed, they, they uh, first, they were actually not even noticing what this media campaign in the Western media. Uh, at least publicly, I don't know if how, how much CIA informed them, like right after they started to feed uh, uh, the American media about uh, supposedly Russian buildup. And uh, it's only very recently, about like two or three weeks ago, that the Ukrainian government started to make very explicit statements, very consolidated that uh, invasion is not really imminent, that uh, we are under Russian threat since uh, 2014, and we are kind of like used to, to this. And according to their intelligence, according to what they know, what they see, uh, this threat is not really much than it was, for example, in, in spring last year during the like earlier stage of, of Russian buildup, when, when they did it very publicly and very, with very intentional, uh, with very clear intentions. And uh, this um, Western media campaign had uh, very material and negative consequences for Ukrainian economy. Ukrainian currency uh, started to devaluate. And uh, the investors started to leave, uh, particularly Ukrainian real estate market. So the Ukrainian government was quite uh, scared that even without actual invasion, Ukrainian economy may have, may get into quite serious trouble. 
uh, from this, and this that is certainly part of the reason they say this. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't take it as simply something that's just kind of like a strategic deception. And I know some some people are saying that just why why are we even taking these guys in the Ukrainian government seriously? Because they would just simply take the first flights from Kiev and uh, leave. Uh, like the first moment the Russian tanks would cross the border and so on and so forth. But uh, so far, this not, not, not any any other alternative you know, source from Ukrainian side appeared. For example, some, some patriotic officers in intelligence saying, like, wait, our government is just traitors. The Russians are going to invade just in about a couple of days and we need to mobilize, we need to to start doing some serious defense. So nothing like this happens. And it looks like uh, this is at least uh, somewhat corresponding to the reality that Ukrainian government sees. And they do not see uh, an actual uh, uh, threat of invasion in a short period of time. Can you give us a sense of why Ukraine is such an important country, both to to Russia and the West and and the United States in particular? What makes Ukraine such an important country strategically, economically, in in, in any other ways? I mean, economically, Ukraine is is actually a big favor. if you look at the economic indicators, Ukraine is probably one of the very, very few countries in the world that has not reached its 1990 level of GDP per capita. So it was a huge economic decline in the 90s, and then Ukraine failed to grow as uh, its uh, Eastern European neighbors. And now, yeah, it's at least according to this base, very basic economic indicators, uh, we live uh, not better than uh, in the end of the Soviet Union, unlike Poland, for example, or even Russia or even Belarus. So uh, economically, like for Russia and for EU, it's a place where the pipeline goes under yeah under Ukrainian land and uh, Ukraine uh, yeah there were uh, some initiatives to have a kind of like tripartite consortium between Russia EU Russia is a supplier of gas EU as consumer and Ukraine as a transitory a territory, these uh, consortiums were kind of like torpedoed in the 90s and 2000s, uh, particularly by Ukrainian side. And the result was that uh, Russians just built yeah, several pipelines around Ukraine. And the Nord Stream 2 is uh, perhaps the most uh, dangerous for Ukraine now because it may uh, make Ukrainian pipeline obsolete. Um, so uh, from the military point of view, Russia, at least, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, there, there, at, at this moment, there are super many military experts who try to guess what, what what's put in mind. And yeah, but at least Russia says so that Ukraine may be military important because if NATO starts to deploy offensive weapons there, I mean, like rockets that can reach uh, Moscow in just in five minutes from Ukrainian territory. It's a threat. And uh, Russian defensive strategy was kind of, uh, was like four centuries expansion. So in order to push the border as far uh, to the West as possible, and this creates a strategic depth, which, uh, Napoleon failed, then Hitler failed, and so it's uh, uh, important from this point of view. Although I'm not, I'm not sure that contemporary wars are like waged uh, in the same way as it was like half century or two centuries ago. But nevertheless, yeah, that's at least what an important part of how Russia. Uh, explains and legitimates uh, its action and its interest about Ukraine and why they 
supposedly have a, need to have a word in which alliances Ukraine may take or may not take, and so on and so forth. And for for the United States, Ukraine is actually like always a kind of like a potential hotspot against Russia. So if Ukraine is uh, creating the tensions against Russia, it might weaken Russia and uh, may uh, deflect the resources of Russia, for example, like in case of any Russia-China escalation. And so uh, potentially, I mean, some people that comment now on the escalation, they are quite cynically writing, so why not let Russians invade Ukraine and let's make Ukraine another Afghanistan for Russia? And considering that uh, the, this war won't be so easy and bloodless as how they annex Crimea, because of like very many reasons, it's just a completely different story, and it won't be so easy like Syria. And uh, so this this can be a very serious war, and so Russia would spend a lot of resources. It would get under sanctions. Probably Nord Stream would also be under sanctions. And it's not that clear that for how long time Russia may actually survive a really major escalation in Ukraine. And uh, so if uh, if it's possible to use Ukraine against Russia, then why not? And that, that might be a reason why this war is actually going on for so, 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 so much time. There is no actual interest in stopping the war as it, uh, there were several opportunities to do this in 2019 and 2015, uh, the United States probably didn't do as much as they could do. Um, so that, that's uh, that's probably the main points. Yeah. Well, you know, before we go to, I guess we could say this this began in 2014. I want to go a little bit further into the past and and ask you to. I know we're talking centuries of history here, but if you can explain for us what the relationship between Ukraine and Russia is, because, you know, there's parts of Ukraine that, that consider themselves very anti-Russia, that don't have anything to do with Russia. There's parts that consider themselves that speak Russian, that have cultural ties. Russians themselves, some of them at least, consider Ukraine sort of a historical part of Russia. So what are we in the West to make of this? I mean, what, what exactly is the correct interpretation here? What, what is Ukraine's relationship to Russia historically? It's a, it's a huge discussion. That's, uh, I wouldn't say that uh, there's any definite answer, definitely nothing like a consensus. There's nothing, uh, nothing close to consensus, for example, about the question whether Ukraine was ever a Russian colony. Not in the, I mean, so, so some people would make this case when some people on the left, even some of the Ukrainian Marxists in the 20th century, they made the case that uh, Ukraine was a uh, Russian colony and at least under Russian empire, it was uh, exploited even economically. I mean, that's, um, that's a, a, that would be then a different story under the Soviet Union when Ukraine was actually developed very quickly and uh, by the end of the Soviet Union was definitely one of the most developed part of the, of the country, which is actually one of the reasons why this post-Soviet uh, crisis was so severe. Um, and uh, But other, other people would say that... Uh, like Ukraine was uh, was more like a Scotland to England, and not even close to relations between colonies of Western metropolis in Africa or Asia, uh, and not even uh, in the same relations as uh, Russia and Central Asia or Russia and, and Siberia. In, in, in these cases, there is much more evidence to, to claim that the, yeah, these were colonies of, of Russian Empire, which were like more or less, uh, at least in, in comparative relations, as uh, at the colonies of Western European uh, colonial empires. But uh, for Ukraine, for Russians, was a kind of like a, a like a part of the core, a part of the the like perception of the nation. So did simply could not imagine Russia without Ukraine. It just was, 
In the Russian Empire, there was this uh, idea of uh, uh, kind of like one people from three parts. So Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians were three parts of the same people, basically. And this narrative, which was uh, recently reiterated by Putin in his article, which got some uh, attention, where he claimed Ukrainians and Russians are just one people artificially divided. This narrative has a very long history in, uh, in, in, in Russian imperial thought. And uh, from this point, you then you would see relations between Ukraine and Russia as a competition of uh, uh, at least two nation-building projects. One nation-building project would say that Ukraine is actually not a part of Russia. Ukraine, Ukrainians are separate people. Um, and this is, yeah, this is the basis of the uh, the one of the one of the possible national identities uh, and one of probably the, the most dominant in Ukraine right now. Another one would be to claim that Ukrainians are actually part of something bigger. Um, uh, and uh, this uh, national building project was didn't didn't succeed to be realized in Russian Empire because of the weakness of modernization in Russian Empire. And then it was aborted by uh, 1917 revolution. In the Soviet Union, the conception was that uh, Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians are separate people, however, brotherly. So very closely related. And so you just cannot imagine the, like from the Soviet perspective, a war between Ukraine and Russia would be just unimaginable. It's like the, simply like like brotherly bloodshed, kind against Tavoy or something like this. And uh, and uh, it's interesting that uh, as a result of this competing nation-building projects, which actually none of them succeeded fully, including the kind of like properly Ukrainian that would be directed against Russia, they did not uh, manage to win uh, the overwhelming majority of Ukraine still, despite three revolutions that had very strong uh, nation building contents, uh, which happened in 1919, 2004 and 2014, mm. three revolutions during one generation of, Uk of Ukrainian list. Mm. And, uh, and so there is a quite big, uh, part of Ukrainian society, which uh, perceives relations between Ukraine and Russia completely differently than uh, the, um, it's even difficult to articulate this. There are very different versions, either to call it Western Ukrainian or anti-Russian Ukrainian or Central European version of Ukrainian identity. And so, but yeah, to, to, to to, to sum it up, uh, some Ukrainians would rather see uh, relations between Ukraine and Russia as antagonistic and would articulate uh, their national identity against Russia. Other Ukrainians would see it uh, relations between Ukraine and Russia as, yeah, that even, even, even if we are different people, we are much more connected then, for example, Ukrainians and Poles, Ukrainians or Western Europeans, definitely. And, uh, and uh, again, another thing to understand is that this, this discussion is actually covering just a small part of the society. Intellectuals, especially, very much into, into this. For the regular Ukrainians, it's, it's quite an abstract thing. Yeah, they would, they would have some, some thoughts about this, for example, yeah, any Ukrainian would understand the question. Are we and Russians the same people or different people? Uh, that, that would be meaningful. However, that would be not that salient question in the life of a regular Ukrainian. According to like all polls conducted for this 30 years of post-Soviet independence, the questions of uh, jobs, wages, uh, prices were on the top the questions of uh, identity, language, geopolitical relations, EU or Russia, NATO or Russia, were in the down of Ukrainian priorities. 
Right, right. Interesting. Well, uh, and I guess that brings us to, to 2014, where we see some of these, uh, I guess, historical political cleavages come into play with, with the, the Euromaidan uh, revolution. And um, before I ask you about specifics, I want to ask you to, to give us, you know, this is, this is one of these events that I think um, has often been misreported. Um, it's a very complicated event, um, but it's understood very differently depending on what uh, side of the political spectrum or what part of the world you come from. What would you say are, are a few of the things that are the most kind of misunderstood or, or unknown generally parts of, of the, the 2014 revolution, uh, maybe to a Western audience? I mean, the, the, the narrative which became dominant in the, in the Western, at least, uh, yeah, so R Russian narrative was very different and also yeah, with, with major flaws. But as I understand that in, in the West, what 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 was what has actually become dominant it was the narrative of uh, professional NGOs uh, that were an important part of the uprising in 2014, but uh, they definitely did not represent uh, the whole diversity of this uprising, and they even less represent the diversity of a big country. And so in, 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 their, uh, in their narrative, this was a democratic, peaceful revolution against uh, uh, an authoritarian government led by Viktor Yanukovych, who was actually not the first time toppled by the revolution, and is probably one of the very few, maybe even the only person, the only ruler in the world which was toppled by two revolutions. It's a, it's a great record to have on his on his yeah that's, that's kind of like a Guinness record. The first time was in two thousand four during the Orange Revolution when Yanukovych tried to stall election to steal elections, and uh, but after 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 the two thousand four revolution, just in two years, he was invited to post revolutionary government at the prime minister, and the prime minister was like almost the top position under the constitution, which was uh, uh, at that moment. And in five years, he was elected the president in free and fair elections. And then in 2014, he was toppled second time. So uh, the, the, this democratic, peaceful grassroots revolution uh, is uh, this narrative of the professional NGOs and taken by uh, by the Western media, by the Western officials, partially because this is what they wanted to hear. And as is also quite known, the uh, Western officials were even openly, like not exactly involved, but they uh, they supported your Maidan revolution quite quite openly. Uh, showing support for the protesters uh, like Victoria Nuland and, and not just her, but like it's whole bunch of EU politicians coming to the Maidan Square and expressing support for, for the revolution. And uh, for EU at that moment, it could be quite inspiring because when the people in Greece were just burning the EU flags, People in Ukraine were waving the EU flags as uh, with, with, with huge inspiration. Mm. Uh, although the EU question, it's all started because of the agreement, uh, uh, association agreement between EU and Ukraine, which was primarily the agreement, the agreement about the free trade zone. And the, that uh, question was sidelined after the government uh, governmental crackdown against the protesters camp then the protesters um, mobilized in much larger scale in the biggest uh, rallies in, in the whole recent ukrainian history and uh, after another uh, wave of repression the protests escalated to First to unarmed violence with Molotov cocktails, with uh, stones. Uh, and in this violence, the radical nationalists, particularly the so called right sector, uh, played a, an important part in um, diffusing the violence and in, in, in uh, making it more efficient. 
And uh, ultimately, the violence played uh, the most important role why Yanukovych uh, had to escape from Kyiv and to leave the country in, in the end of uh, February 2014. So this uh, um, nationalist and violent part is certainly under-discussed and under, uh, not, exa not exactly understood. And, and this is partially the, a response to Russian narrative, which uh, targeted what they called Ukrainian fascism and uh, spotlighted specifically this radical nationalist elements in the rhetoric, in the symbolics, in the, among the protesters. Although, the, yeah, the, the radical nationalists were not the majority of the protesters, they were not, not that big groups, but that doesn't mean that they were not uh, important. And so these are kind of like polarizing narratives, like very kind of like whitewashing from the West and uh, demonizing from Russian side, which played an important role in uh, inspiring and legitimating uh, Crimean annexation, in uh, inspiring the anti-Maidan protests in the southeastern parts of Ukraine, which felt like it's, uh, it was also about fear, what's going on in the capital, violence, some, some radical nationalists called fascists. And uh, some of the people uh, started to protest against this. And uh, then there is a quite mysterious story about the appearance of an armed group from that came from Russia. And it's still uh, under debate how much they were actually controlled by any anything in the Russian government, or this were their own initiative, which then required uh, from Putin to make a decision either to support them and to uh, annex Eastern Ukraine the same way as the next Crimea, or they did a different thing. So they they, they covertly supplied them, helped them, and in the crucial moments, Russian army intervened and uh, prevented the defeat of the separatist rebels. And the result is that uh, a part of uh, Donbass, Eastern Ukrainian, heavily industrialized and urbanized region is now under control of so-called People's Republics. It should be seen uh, more or less like uh, Russian puppet states, uh, not really anything independent and very much uh, dependent on Russian support. And, uh, and uh, the Minsk uh, Accords, which also under discussion during this uh, uh, recent escalation, is precisely about how to integrate them back to Ukraine. And Ukraine doesn't uh, want to actually to accept it. And uh, for since 2014, when the Minsk Accords were signed, uh, Ukraine uh, were finding different excuses not to do what they agreed together with uh, France and Germany and Russia. And uh, one of the reasons was very, very explicit uh, violent threats uh, from the nationalist civil society in Ukraine, uh, which perceives uh, Minsk records as a capitulation for Ukraine, as uh, introducing some totally pro-Russian elements back to Ukrainian state that finally in their perception started to break with Russia and to move in its own independent. Uh, direction, although very much dependent on the United States and the EU, militarily, economically, politically. And so uh, for national civil society, that would be a capitulation of their nation building project that would require recognition of Ukraine's political diversity, that a very large part of Ukrainians are not simply zombified by Russian propaganda, they are uh, not national traitors, they have very rational reasons not to agree with the nationalist narrative and not to accept what what uh, national civil society want how, how how it wants to see ukraine they have a different alternative perception of ukraine and that would be indeed a capitulation for a unifying nation building project 
Well, let, let me ask you about the the uh, you know Ukrainian ultranationalists or the the, the far right uh, that you mentioned just before that were, were kind of a, a block to to this the, the these the Minsk Accords being kind of followed through. Um, people have have said, well, you know, you look at uh, elections since the the Maidan revolution. The far right hasn't done particularly well in those ele- elections, um, and so therefore, you know, the, the the role of the far right in modern Ukraine is is pretty negligible. So, I want to ask you, what exactly is the role of the far right in in Ukraine today, and is it the case that because they have not won, you know, uh, this many parliamentary seats, that their influence isn't isn't that important in the government? Yes, that's a very typical response that is still propagated by certain circles uh, uh, in order to downplay uh, the role of Ukrainian radical nationalists in Ukrainian politics, uh, which is significant. But yeah, it is indeed not uh, we are winning parliamentary seats, but we are uh, direct uh, pressure on the um, on the government. We are dissemination of the narratives and if you look at the actual policies that were uh, taken by post-Maidan Ukrainian government uh, you'd see many of the policies that were exactly in the program of radical nationalist parties particularly decommunization banning the communist party of Ukraine um, the Ukrainianization, which means uh, pushing Russian language from Ukrainian public sphere. So many things that uh, far-right um, uh, campaigned before Maidan, they were actually implemented by uh, uh, nominally non-far-right uh, politicians. And the reasons for this was partial, par- partly that the radical nationalists are able to press on the government. And another uh, reason is that uh, nationalist radicalization is a very good compensation for the lack of any revolutionary changes after the revolution. So that if you start, for example, to change something in ideological sphere and symbolic sphere, renaming the streets, uh, taking away any Soviet symbols from the country, removing Lenin's statues that were standing in most part of Ukraine until 2014, until 2015, in many Ukrainian cities. Uh, And so you create an illusion of change without actually changing in the direction of the people's inspirations. And this says about the the nature of Euromedan revolution as a deficient revolution, but that's another big question, maybe we'll return later to this, but to continue about the far right, uh, I mean, the argument about the electoral unimportance is also uh, quite uh, weak because uh, the basically any ideological party in Ukraine would be a failure. You wouldn't find, um, I mean, we we had ideological left-wing parties uh, before uh, 2014 and before the Communist Party was uh, effectively banned, uh, but they were losing in, in support. Ukraine uh, did not actually gain a real liberal party that would be electorally relevant. The, 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 probably the only exception happened in, in, in the recent elections because uh, kind of like liberal party, or at least the people from this professional civil society, millions, uh, which perceive themselves as liberals, also that they're quite nationalist, but not in exactly that radical version of the far right. But nevertheless, if, even if you take this part, it's called voice. And it's called voice because the first person in the list of this party was a very popular uh, pop singer. And like a superstar in Ukraine, uh, Svetoslav Okarchuk. And, and the, most of the people actually voted not for the liberal programs, but for Svetoslav Okarchuk. And Okarchuk is just one of the examples how personalized is Ukrainian elections. So most of the relevant parties actually kind of like electoral machines 
for specific people, ideologies are usually totally irrelevant. And it's not difficult to find uh, politicians that were switching between completely opposite uh, camps in Ukrainian politics several times during their career. So just for example, Petro Poroshenko who was the uh, president of Ukraine after Euromaidan and recently by the end of his cadence and uh, when he lost election as well, he, he turned into kind of like a leader of uh, nationalist opposition against uh, uh, the current president, Volodymyr Zelensky. But this nation, at this moment, nationalist politicians started, started his political career in completely opposite camp. So he was uh, one of the founders of the Party of Regions the party of Viktor Yanukovych, the party which was actually toppled during the Euromaidan uprising. Moreover, he was not only the founder of this, of this party in the 90s, uh, he was one of the ministers in Viktor Yanukovych government until some point. So you, 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 you see that it's much more about um, paternal interests, about specific uh, clientelistic networks within Ukrainian elite, uh, which uh, create the political parties, usually just for one elections. And the, 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 the cases of some long-term party survival in Ukraine, where one party would be re-elected several times in different parliaments are very rare. It's, it's, uh, it would be impossible to find even probably even five of such parties. Mm. And so uh, when this electoral politics is so much about uh, big people in the elite and their money, uh, they're usually called oligarchs. Mm. Uh, and uh, their control of the biggest media that influence public opinion, then the, any attempt to build an ideological party, either nationalist or liberal or left-wing, just from below, it's uh, always, almost, uh, almost always is doomed from the very start. Yeah. So it, it just simply, it, it's a misleading uh, comparison to compare the small results of the radical nationalist parties, which are indeed ideological, they do have ideology, they have, uh, motivated activists, and probably they are at this moment they are the probably the only parties in the real sense of the word party, which we would like to see them a mobilizationist party, party of that unites really kind of like people that stands on more or less the same platform, the same ideas. So for, for, for the nationalist ideas are important. For the, part, for the parties which are really, which really matters in Ukrainian politics, ideas are not important. And so this is an, an, an unequal competition. And finally, uh, how the radical nationalists actually making this influence in Ukrainian politics, but precisely because they are the most organized, the most mobilized parts of the civil society with the, um, uh, stronger street mobilization. And uh, they, after 2014, they uh, also got the resources for violence. They got the opportunities to create the affiliated uh, armed units. So one of the most known is Azov, uh, an official unit within National Guard institution that uh, owns the weapons up to tanks. And at the same time, it's an unaffiliated far-right party, National Corps, uh, an affiliated paramilitary structure, uh, a broad network of uh, training centers, summer camps, uh, sympathetic cafes, uh, magazines. So this, this is a, an infrastructure that uh, perhaps doesn't exist in any other European country, maybe in the former Yugoslavia. I'm not sure about how the how it happened after the Yugoslavian wars in, in, in 1990 and how the radical nationalists in Serbia and perhaps Croatia as well, then they, uh, how they entered the, their politics. 
but uh, anyway, it, it uh, may look like much more as the 1930s far-right politics in Europe than uh, contemporary far-right politics, which uh, doesn't rely so much on, on the paramilitary violence, but uh, instead it's capable to win a quite broad part of the electorate. Mm. Well, I, I certainly hope that Ukraine does not go the way of, uh, of, of former Yugoslavia. Uh, mm. you know, fing- fingers crossed for that. Um, uh, you mentioned how, how politics has, has become so personalized in Ukraine. Of course, the, the current president himself is a, is a celebrity, he's an actor, right? He, he played the president on TV. Interesting that, that Ukraine kind of reflecting this, I think, global movement that as people lose trust with politicians, they turn to people outside of politics uh, to solve the problems. But in, uh, with, with that in mind, I want to ask you, often in, in Western media uh, and, and uh, in the rhetoric of politicians, uh, the matter of Ukraine kind of gets boiled down to this is a, a matter of defending democracy and kind of liberal values. Um, and that's why, you know, the, the U.S. has to be sending weapons uh, in there or NATO has to be sending weapons as well and soldiers. Um, but what has actually been the state of Ukraine's democracy, both under Poroshenko, who, who followed the, the Maidan revolution, and then also now under Zelensky, who was voted in as kind of this change agent who would who people hoped would, would change things? What, what has actually happened uh, in Ukraine under them? Uh, so, uh, I mean, it's more about pluralism than actual democracy. So if you compare Ukraine and Russia, yeah, you would see that in Russia, there's uh, Putin, which was able to consolidate elite uh, around him. He repressed some of the Russian oligarchs. Boris Berezovsky was maybe one, just one of them. He repressed also others. Uh, here, um, was able to win at least uh, passive consent from the majority of uh, Russian voters who got uh, some stability after very tumultuous 1990s, after the crash that hit very hard uh, on, on in many, in most of, probably all, all of post-Soviet, country, uh, post-Soviet countries. And uh, this kind of uh, leader, I, I'm calling them Caesarist after Gramsci, uh, Caesarist leader that is capable to repress some, but also balance other interests. Uh, in Ukraine, we had only candidates for real Caesarism, uh, but uh, the fact that they were toppled in several revolutions uh, and that none of uh, Ukrainian president was capable to turn into anything like Lukashenko or Putin, it doesn't mean that uh, this is actually a democracy, it's the liberal democracy. It just, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's always failed attempts of consolidating uh, a strong authoritarian government. But at, at, at the same time, it's, it's also kind of like a continuation of the same uh, crisis of post-Soviet crisis of political representation when which which was uh, uh, yeah you read it we are talking about this uh, about the whole world actually that people are turning to populists because they are not uh, believing into all the elites anymore and people are less participating in the institutional uh, side of politics but turning more to non-institutional to populist movements to violence so on and so forth but in case of, of the post-soviet space this uh, crisis of political representation only we call it crisis of hegemony following Gramsci uh, is probably much more severe because the elites which started to rule the post-soviet countries didn't have legitimacy from the very start this post-Soviet ruling class of political capitalists was created in the extremely rapid uh, privatization of the state property, not the this primitive accumulation that uh, uh, was done during like centuries in Western Europe, but in, in the matter of months, years at most, and without any um, sources for legitimacy 
for for this privatization. So it was it is still widely perceived, and it's shown in in in, in the polls. Most of the people perceive this uh, large scale privatization as a theft. So those oligarchs, that mafia that captured our state, they simply stolen state property and uh, they have nothing uh, legitimate about that. And, and, and of course, this creates this kind of uh, very, very personalized, very non-ideological, uh, uh, non-hegemonic politics. And uh, Caesarism may be seen as one of uh, deficient solutions for, 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 for this crisis of hegemony and uh, deficient revolutions as Maidan revolution in Ukraine may be seen as another deficient solution. Uh, revolution that does not, that responds to the crisis, but only reproduces this crisis and even more escalates this crisis. And so this uh, election of Zelensky who like had like zero experience in politics, except of that he was, joking about politics and he was playing Ukrainian president in a popular TV show as it was it was indeed a, like a, like a total rejection of the total the old politics so we are voting for a new guy who is not like them like all these oligarchs like Poroshenko who was stealing who who have his billions in uh, offshores or whatever uh, we are voting for a new face and Zelensky, for Zelensky, it was just completely enough to be extremely vague about any significant Ukrainian political issues during his campaign. And uh, but he won elections with, with huge result, unseen, unprecedented in all Ukrainian history. Seventy-three percent of the voters voted for him in the second round, and just in half a year, his party created from scratch, uh, just in about three or four months, and named after his TV show, uh, they it won uh, the unprecedented single party majority in Ukrainian parliament against all like old uh, oligarchic parties. Uh, but the party was not a real party as well. And there was like a huge number of scandals with the random people here Zelensky put on the list of this party that were actually had very different loyalties and now part of them actually voting against their own president. So it's, it's, it's of course, it's a, it's a mess and it, uh, it could not be even expected that this would be kind of anything like a coherent party with anything like a coherent program. And But it, it also says about why it was so difficult to actually implement anything uh, by Zelensky to, because he didn't have any real party. He didn't have uh, any populist movement behind him. Like in case of Trump, there was at least this uh, Tea Party, which first radicalized the Republicans and then Trump appeared. So something started from below. In the case of Zelensky, it was his TV show, his huge rating, his popularity, total rejection of, uh, of the old politics. And only then he creates something to fill in political institutions. And uh, finally, it appeared that he didn't even have a, a coherent team behind him. And in the very first months, he was like his first government uh, lasted just for half a year. Mm, and then there was a very frequent changes of the offices in the government. Many ministers lost the offices, many new ministers appeared. Um, and, and this, of course, it creates a mess. And at the moment, Zelensky is uh, certainly doesn't, he doesn't build a democracy. What he tries to build is a kind of like uh, what's called in post-Soviet politics, a vertical of power, something like a, like a chain of command, uh, mostly informal. And uh, he's uh, kind of like erratically uh, represses so-called pro-Russian opposition, blocking the TV channels and uh, Putin, the leader of the most popular opposition party, under house arrest. And at the same time, recently, he started to attack 
Poroshenko, the nationalist opposition against Zelensky, and trying to connect uh, Medvedchuk, the pro-Russian leader, and Poroshenko into one criminal case. Mm. Kind of like uh, discrediting both of them because it would be completely toxic for each of them to have any relations with each of them. Yeah, yeah with each other. Uh, so, and, uh, yeah, in the situation of this escalation uh, of the tensions with Russia, this, of course, is, uh, sounds kind of like, yeah, same, on the one hand, ridiculous, on the other hand, dangerous. Um, on the third side, uh, it's also an opportunity for Zelensky to exploit this foreign threat in order to, you know, to, to try to consolidate his power, but he might not be that smart to do this. Mm. And uh, so the lack of experience, of course, it matters. And it's seen uh, how some of the moves are just turning counterproductive against him. For example, an attempt to start a criminal case against Poroshenko, uh, which ended in kind of like in a triumphant coming back by Poroshenko from his new year uh, foreign trip, uh, which actually uh, increased his support among the Ukrainian public, not decreased. So there are many mistakes, and uh, and, and 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 this is yeah. But in fact, this is uh, if you look at this in a long perspective, this is uh, just just a continuation of of, of, the, of the same mess that Ukraine had for the thirty years, but maybe only in more evident more ridiculous form. And so that's why uh, we analyze this as an escalation of the same crisis of political representation. Interesting, and and maybe also a cautionary tale of of kind of a celebrity politics that's just disconnected from from any uh, popular base or or Mm -hmm. movement. Um, Well, let me close off by asking you maybe more of a a touchy-feely question, which is what are your hopes for both how this current crisis uh, will be resolved and I guess for, for Ukraine going forward. I mean, you know, within being both idealistic but also realistic, what would you hope is, is going to be the outcome of all of this? I mean, hope, hope, hope it certainly that should be a peaceful, um, peaceful resolution for the crisis. And so that's what we all need to hope for that uh, Russians would not start any stupid invasion and that they would not start to escalate anything in Donbass that may, may escalate not only in Donbass, but even, even, even further. So we need to hope that this would be uh, somehow evaded. And yeah, there are certain things that may help to evade this. Uh, NATO is one thing, and um, I mean, some Ukrainians would, would now probably now perceive the NATO question as again like the question of, of just simply patriotism. But if you look at the polls, there is a large minority of Ukrainians who are explicitly against NATO, and even um, uh, there, there is hardly a stable pro-NATO majority if you look closely to the polls. Yeah, at this moment, there is evidence that maybe over 50% of Ukrainians in Ukraine, which does not in- include its most pro-Russian and anti-NATO parts, Crimea and Donbass. So this is kind of like an, an, an error sample. Uh, so there is evidence that uh, in the uh, as a result of Russian escalations, now more people would support NATO. But uh, I would be very careful about how solid and stable this majority is uh, because in 2014 it happened uh, the same way a huge spike in support for NATO during very intense fights in Donbass but then when Minsk records were signed uh, uh, some people cooled down and support for NATO decreased uh, to about 40-45% and so it may happen after the resolution of the current crisis as well but nevertheless, there are like 25, 30% of Ukrainians who would say, yeah, we just don't need NATO. This doesn't, uh, I mean, there are obvious benefits if Ukraine was in NATO right now, at least probably there won't be this escalation. 
but it's it just some parallel reality. We need to ask ourselves, uh, what, what is the point to knock at a closed door like for, for, for so, so many years? Does it actually help Ukraine? And uh, does it make us more secure? And uh, yeah, the uh, well, Ukrainian government, of course, has uh, has a voice here. And within this uh, escalation, it would be possible to say, "Come on, NATO, you are not going to accept us anyway." Especially after this escalation, especially when this NATO became so toxic. Mm -hmm. Particularly for some of the European elites, and do you really believe whatever would happen? Uh, I mean, everyone understands that after this, uh, after this escalation, and uh, however this crisis would end, uh, less of total humiliation of, of Russia, uh, the opportunities for Ukraine joining NATO would be even lower than before the escalation. Uh, Russia has succeeded to. Uh, bring some discord among NATO. Most explicitly, Germany has uh, a separate position now and uh, plays a separate politics. And so uh, this uh, this door won't be open uh, more. And uh, the question for Ukraine is uh, whether to continue to uh, stay the same line or. Uh, and for actually for some of the people in the government, and, uh, specifically by the Secretary of National Security Council, uh, Danilov, uh, who recently made several interviews, uh, for him, this is uh, all the actually the part of, uh, of, of a very long term strategy against Russia that so what Ukraine is actually struggling for and fighting for is not simply for Ukraine, but also for liberation of Chechnya, for liberation of Tatarstan, maybe also Siberia from Russia. So this is uh, something, some, some unfinished business of dismantling Russian empire, which was not finished in a century ago and uh, was not finished uh, during the dis dissolution of the Soviet Union. But the question is, uh, whether most of Ukrainians actually are ready to sacrifice themselves for this anti-Russian crusade and the total dissolution of Russia and creating a kind of like a patchwork of small states on, on, on this huge territory, which for some people in the West would be a great thing, but also it's a big question for the rest of the humanity, whether we really would like to check how civil war looks like uh, on the territory of a nuclear power, this total collapse of the state and which risks it brings. So too many questions for Ukraine and for, for the whole world, whether it really worth it. And uh, yeah, there's any progress in implementation of the Minsk Accords, the peace accords would certainly be helpful for de-escalation. And the biggest worry is that for, for Ukraine and for, for those people who are claiming that this is what the chaos uh, Ukrainian society won't accept it and so on and so forth. Actually, even, even though most Ukrainians are not happy about the Minsk Accords, uh, mostly because they proved quite ineffective since 2015 and they didn't really bring peace to Donbass. Not exactly that the Ukrainians find anything completely uh, unacceptable in them, at least most of Ukrainians, not, not the radicalized national civil society. Uh, the actual protests against uh, the Minsk Accords were quite small and not really supported by the majority of Ukrainians. Um, only about 25-26% in the polls supported so-called anti-capitulation protests. Yes, but um, I mean, if Ukraine, Ukrainian government would be serious in implementing and not finding excuses appealing to some threat from, from the nationalists, because in this case, you might ask for help from the West, 
a very consolidated position of the US and EU in quick implementation of the Minsk Accords would certainly be helpful for the Ukrainian government and would certainly demotivate part of the national civil society, especially those parts which directly dependent on the financial aid from the West. Uh, to, to engage in any uh, radical action actions against Minsk and against Ukrainian government. And Ukraine um, may look for some constructive approach how to actually integrate these territories without undermining the Ukrainian central government structure. And uh, one part of this uh, could be an appeal to, to the West primarily, but also to Russia to actually to help this rebuilding Donbass, uh, because this is devastated territory that uh, it has been impoverished and, and all, all these parties are somehow kind of complicit in, in this war. And now they have, uh, uh, yeah, it would be great if they would help to, to, to rebuild it. And uh, because it's, uh, it should not be simply the burden for Ukraine to do this. But of course, all, all this uh, more constructive approach to, to Minsk records instead of sabotage, instead of blackmailing with, with, with national violence, uh, it resides on, on the very basic recognition that Ukraine is diverse, that Ukrainians, Ukrainians see differently the relations uh, with Russia and with the West. And if we are serious about building a more kind of like civic, synthetic, dialogic nation that would be inclusive for, for the real, real existing diversity, we need to treat uh, the people with, as, uh, as, they, uh, as they are treated now, with uh, repression, with discrimination, and uh, with, with, with attacks against dissenting opinions. And, and Minsk is actually important in that, in order to implement Minsk, uh, you, you need to recognize Ukrainian diversity political and cultural. But at the same time, uh, Minsk provides uh, a tool in order to bring balance back to Ukrainian politics and bring other parts of Ukrainian society uh, back and uh, to, to, to give them more influence, which is not the same as giving more influence to Russian government. And there are ways to uh, somehow to, to compensate that influence. So yeah, that, that's it. Well, uh, hopefully some sort of compromise like that can be reached that kind of maybe leaves everyone unsatisfied, but, but uh, has an outcome that is acceptable at least to, to everyone uh, and, and, and brings the focus back on what you were saying, the, those bread and butter issues, uh, the, 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 you know, being food on the table, making sure that people have jobs, homes, all that stuff. Um, let's hope. Uh, but I, I do want to thank you very much for, for coming on. This has been a really interesting conversation. I, I, I think it'll be really interesting for our, our listeners. Uh, so uh, I, if you want to give us um, a sense of where our listeners can find your work or, uh, you know, what, what uh, anything that you have coming out that you would want people to be aware of, no, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm quite active on Twitter, Facebook, and I post my works and actually all of them available online on my academia.edu website, all the articles. Uh, well, one, we will link to that in the episode description. Yeah. If you do want to follow Vladimir, you can find him on uh, at V-O-L-O-D underscore i-s-h-c-h-e-n-k-o which is also how you spell his last name uh vladimir again thank you so much for, for coming on this has been this has been great and uh to our listeners as, as always i will ask you to please share subscribe all that stuff send the word out to people make it so that people uh, hear what, what vladimir is telling us to have a bit more of a complicated or, or, or rather more nuanced and better understanding of what is happening in Ukraine, and and of course, uh, if you if you can spare us a few dollars, 
please do so and we can uh put out more of these episodes and edit them uh quicker and, and all that so once again this is Branko Machatich from 1200 podcast uh signing off thank you very much Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism